good morning Calvary we are so glad you're here as you look around we continue to see more and more people come and if you're wondering why people haven't said hi to you it's probably because they're new as well so we make sure to introduce yourselves but understand this we don't exist just for you to come here on Sunday mornings and fill up a chair we want you to get involved because as the title of our series this month is in him a church alive in Christ we exist to glorify God and to draw each other closer to God together. So get involved in a small group. Get your children involved in children's ministry and your students involved in student ministry. Join um, the men's ministry or the women's ministry. Go to Discovering Calvary, which is immediately after the service, and find out the heartbeat of what this church is about and get involved as we continue to chase after him. So glad you're here today. We continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in South Florida who are recovering from the hurricane. Um, don't neglect your prayers for them as well. We're starting this series. We have been doing a series called Sincerely Paul, which is addressing many of the letters that Paul wrote and kind of summarizing those. One of those uh, books that Paul wrote in the New Testament was the book of Ephesians. And if you notice, we didn't cover that one, and it is by design. Here's why. When you write the book of Philippians, when he wrote the book of Philippians, it was to the church at Philippi. When he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he wrote them to the church at Corinth. Ephesus was a region. And so the book of Ephesians is a great book at looking not at specific problems, but the general doctrine, the general belief of how the church should function. And one of the dominant themes you're going to find through the book of Ephesians, as well as the rest of Paul's letters, is this idea of dwelling in Christ or dwelling in him. In fact, Paul uses the word 164 times in Christ in his writings. If someone uses that that word that many times in Christ, in Greek it's one word, in Christ, then what you're understanding is this is an important doctrine for us to stand. And the, here's the gist of it. As followers of Jesus, our very identity is to be found in him. Our very identity is to be found in Him. Is your identity found in Him? Or do you just think it is? How do we know the difference? That's where we're going through this series. And today we're going to talk about what it looks like to be adopted in Him. To do so, we're going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Basically, Paul wrote the book. To the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Now, I grew up in the church, went to seminary. Can I just admit, there's a lot of churchy words in that verse, in those verses I just read. So what I want to actually do is take this passage and go word by word in a large uh, context of understanding what these words mean and seeing the pattern of how we are adopted as Christ, and a great implication of that as we go forward. I want to start by reading verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's a, a follower of Jesus Christ by God's will, to the faithful saints 
in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Once again, this is written to the churches in Ephesus, which is a broader community, a letter to be distributed. So it's as if Paul was writing it to West Lafayette, he might send it, and it might arrive first at Northview, and then they send it to us, and then we send it on to Covenant. You see what I'm saying? It's this idea of this was supposed to be distributed in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesus, uh, Ephesians, the people of Ephesus, covers the doctrine, and the last three chapters are the application, okay? Now, when he's writing it, he writes it to the saints. That is a very important word. What does it mean by the saints? And if you're thinking Catholic saints, it's different, okay? The reason he uses the word saints in this context is because Jesus has come and died for us. See, before this moment, if you looked at the, what we call the Old Testament, the books in the Bible that were found before Jesus came, the first two-thirds of your Bible, if you look at it, those books, if he was writing, it would have probably been addressed to the Israelites. That's what we often refer to as the Old Testament church. But once Jesus came, he made a way for all of us. And aren't we glad? Because I don't know about you, but I'm actually an Israelite, right? And so when Jesus came for us all, instead of writing to the people of Israel, he says to the saints. Now, here's the problem with saints. Most of us probably feel more like ants. And I, if you've been around here a while, you've probably heard me say this church put the fun in dysfunction because every church put the fun in dysfunction. And churches, a lot of times, like our homes, like to put up the pictures of how everything's going great. But the reality is every single one of us in this room has problems. Every single one of us has issues. That's why we need Jesus. And so we don't come in here trying to act like we got it all together. In fact, we come in here knowing that we need each other to point each other to the God who saves and gives us hope in every situation. And the way that's described is verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at first glance, it's just a greeting, right? Grace and peace. If you read many of Paul's letters, he says, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. But the reason it became a greeting is the significance of the words behind that. So let's chase that through. What is grace? Grace, by definition, is receiving what we do not deserve. Receiving what we do not deserve. Compare that with mercy is mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. So, the way this unfolds is we have made mistakes. So a perfect and holy God can't be in the presence of us because he is everything that is good. And since the curse, since Adam and Eve, we, partake, we partook of evil... In other words, can we all admit at one point in our life, we've lied? If you can't admit that, you're a liar right now. <laughs> Love you. But through the chasing of that, we have been separated from a holy of God. And so what we deserve is eternal separation from God. Not just hell, but eternal separation from God. Now, since the beginning of time, God has made a way for us to get back into a right relationship with Him. So mercy is not receiving eternal separation. Grace is getting the relationship with God. So through what Jesus did on the cross, He died on a way for us to know Him. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, I encourage you to do that. Come and talk to us after the service. It realizes that He came and He lived a perfect life, that He was holy in every way, that He... he came and lived amongst us and, and did 
everything to point us back. And when he died on us, he paid away. It was like he was the defense attorney who not only defended us, but said, I'll take the punishment upon myself so that we don't have to have the consequences, but we get to be set free in the relationship that we were made to be all along with the relationship with God. Isn't that exciting? It's just recognizing it. Y'all can talk. It's okay. You know, or can we talk? Yeah, talk. It's okay. And this understanding of what this looks like is as we've received this gift, what affords us is peace. Now, peace is often misidentified in our society as truce. Peace is the idea of Thanksgiving's coming, y'all. You know it, right? And before long, Christmas, Christmas is less than three months away. You are welcome. In my house, we would have a Christmas tree set up September 1st, but we don't. That's another story another time. So my wife wants to have pumpkins and stuff like that. I don't get it. But anyways, some people are fall people. I'm, I'm a Christmas guy, but that's another story another time. In the course of all of this, I totally forgot where I was going. I got distracted by Christmas. <laughs> what we're trying to understand is what it looks like to have peace because the holiday seasons are coming, and here's how a lot of our holidays will play out. I can't wait for all the family to get here. Please, everybody, get along. Please, everybody, get along. Please, everybody, get along. Because when you take a bunch of imperfect people, chaos can break out, right? And so what we really want is we want to capture a glimpse of truth. We want to capture a glimpse of time where we're all getting along so we can take the picture and put on our, our walls the happy moments because we know not every moment around the people we care the most about is going to happen, right? We don't really expect peace. We expect truth. Jesus didn't come for truce. He came for peace. Which meant we don't have to fake it. That the God of this universe looked down and loved you and he wants you to have a right relationship with him both back in the past and forevermore so that when the trials of this world comes because there will be seasons of your life where winter will feel like and you may feel like your prayers aren't going past the ceiling. There will be seasons of harvest where everything is going great but through every season of your life God is faithful so that you can have peace in the celebration. A new baby's come. Woohoo! Let's celebrate, right? I just got the cancer diagnosis. Let's have peace. The peace of God is afforded to us through the tears and through the celebrations. It's afforded us through the, the trials and the joys. God's peace is not dictated by the emotions you feel, but by His very presence in your life. So when Paul says grace and peace to you, may you have the relationship with God through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, through what Jesus did on the cross, so that you may dwell with peace, not only into eternity, but here, now. How do we do that? By dwelling in Him. So we get to verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Blessed May you receive this blessing. What's the blessing? We just discovered it. Grace and peace. Right relationship and having peace in every circumstances. But the blessing that we often want is, I like to describe it like this, the really big screen TV. Because football, right? Boiler up. Now, what we really want is what we want. I, I want my family to get along. I want to be married with 2.2 kids. I want the white picket fence. I want the, the car that gets incredible gas mileage but rides like an SUV. Hello, right? 
we want everything that we want. That's not the blessing it's talking about there because it says, blessed be to God, so that we, when we have a right relationship with God, when God's grace comes on us and we are back into a right relationship with God and then we are afforded the peace, what we're doing is we're dying to ourselves. We're putting down the old self and our life is intent on, focused on how good and faithful God is. And so as we give God the glory, that's where we find the peace. Because he is good. You and I weren't made to have the biggest screen TV. I know, my wife keeps telling me. We were made to be in a right relationship with God. And that's what it means to dwell with him. And as we do so, we get the spiritual blessing. Notice it doesn't just say blessing. It's the spiritual blessing, the, the presence of God as we dwell from the heavens in Christ. The spiritual blessing from the heavens of Christ. That's really important for us to understand. So what does it look like for us to have spiritual blessings on earth? What does it look like to have spiritual blessings as we dwell in Christ? That's debated as much of Ephesians is. By the way, Ephesians chapter 1 is all about, right, having this peace and the fact that God has a plan, we're going to come back to that in a moment, and that God is doing all of these wonderful things. The book of Ephesians is about unity, and ironically enough, Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the most debated chapters in the entire Bible. Isn't it ironic? That's how the enemy works. A book and a chapter that are about unity can divide the church. I don't think it has to, because when he's talking about having the spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms there, I like what one commentary said, the spiritual descriptor, the blessing of every spiritual is the descriptor, and what it's talking about is we are able to have glimpses of heaven found in the chaos on earth. Isn't that a beautiful description? Glimpses of what eternity will look like in the chaos of earth. Glimpses when a hurricane comes through, we can have peace in the storm. When the cancer diagnosis comes, we can have peace. In every situation, in every moment of life, we get to see that God is faithful. So, as we chase that through, it's important for us to understand what it looks like to trust God as adopted sons or daughters of the King. Blessed is the God of the Father. In other words, the highlight of this is may God be and receive all the glory. As sons and daughters, I'm now going to read the most debated verses in the chapter 1 of Ephesians that often divide the church, and I'm going to come back and say it shouldn't, and I'm going to explain why in a second. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Do you know those verses weren't actually debated until like the 1600s? Part of the reason was the Gutenberg printing press hadn't been invented yet. And some of you are like, what does the Gutenberg printing press have to do with anything? That's the first time that the Bible became mass produced. And so instead of having a person like me standing up in front of the room telling you what the Bible says, you could actually read the Bible for yourself. And as people became literate instead of illiterate, more and more people started reading the Bible. And so part of it is, when you start reading the Bible, you start going, what does this word mean? And so then you end up diving into areas that really don't matter. Let me start by saying this. These verses are found in the middle of a paragraph. English 
101. The main theme of a section is not usually found in the middle of a paragraph, right? Say, this was written in Greek. It's true in Greek, too. <laughs> These are here to be supportive, and what we're arguing over is, what does it mean to say, he chose us, or he predestined? And I'm not going to use the words usually described. If you know those words, kudos. But that's the, I don't want to confuse other people. So what I'm going to say is, the words he chose us and he predestined us are argued over whether or not those words are designed to be prescriptive or descriptive of our faith. In other words, did God prescribe what it means for who to become a Christian? Or does this describe those who become Christians? And I'm going to hearken back to say it doesn't really matter if it's prescriptive or descriptive because God is on his throne, and this is in the middle of a passage. And yes, we can have those discussions in one-on-three kind of situations in our small group settings, but understand this very important point. This is not about that. This is about that God has a plan and has always had a plan. The main point of Ephesians 1 is that God has always had a plan a plan for us. So as you chase the Bible, the story through the Bible, his story is really our history, right? His story is really our history, and every story points us to the fact that God is on his throne. And so as we begin to think about it, what I would like you to understand is the point of understanding Ephesians chapter 1. If someone asks you, what's your view on Ephesians chapter 1, church, I would like you to be able to respond with the following. Praise be to God, God had a plan, and God has always had a plan. Some of you don't seem very excited about it. Let me say it again, so maybe you can get a little excited. Maybe we can get a little talking going, all right? The main point of Ephesians chapter 1 is that God always has a plan. And so if you are asked, what is the main point of Ephesians 1, here's what I would like you to be able to say. Praise be to God, God has a plan, and God has always had a plan. This is good news, because we were ain'ts who were afforded the ability to be saints. We were lost, but now we can be found. We can keep using these words that are fancy and funny and fancy. And, but the point is, God has a purpose for you. Do you walk in that purpose? Do you walk in that purpose? Here's the problem. We don't walk in that purpose because... We live in isolation thinking that our life is about ourselves. But when you look through the course of the bigger book of the Bible, and you see how all the stories are pointed to the centrality, the center moment of all of time when Jesus came, it paints a very descriptive story not only for how we are, but how we are to live. In other words, from the begin very beginning of the time when Adam and Eve the first people on the earth were walking in the garden. They were told there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you can do whatever you want to. Their relationship with God was right, right? But then they were told, just don't eat of this one tree. So what did they do? They ate of that tree. And in that moment, they immediately felt uncomfortable in the skin they're in. So they, they tried to, to fashion these, these fake clothes out of fig leaves, right? And God looked and goes, what are you doing? First of all, why are, you, why are you ashamed of being in the skin you're in? Oh, your sin. And so God, from the very beginning, began pointing to the centrality of Christ because he said, you are now separated from me. And he sacrificed an animal and covered them through the blood of that sacrifice 
with the clothes, symbolizing the sacrifice of what Jesus would do on the cross for us as the Lamb of God. And when Joseph was sold into slavery by his own family, did not give up the faith, but lived steadfast in a faithful life and eventually became the rescuer. Do you think Jesus was sold out by his own people only to have to serve as the rescuer? When Moses is leading people to the promised land, it's symbolic of the fact that Jesus would lead us onto the promised land of our eternal rest. What about Ruth finding her kinsman redeemer after being an alien in the foreign land without rights and without hope, yet having faith points us to the fact that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer and that even though we are a foreigner in this world, our home can be found and we can have security because Jesus has come. Or what about, hello, Jonah spending three nights in the belly of a whale? Or a giant fish. Any symbolism to Jesus spending three days in a tomb? Only to be set free. Because ain't nobody found nobody. And as we begin to unfold this, we realize there comes a point when Jesus came and, and the Old Testament pointing of the centrality of Christ doesn't stop because in order for something to be central, it has to be both forward-looking and backward-looking. And so this idea of pointing to the point where Jesus comes in our life should change us so that when Jesus was on that cross and as he was pierced and as his blood was poured out for us, there was a room in the temple, in the holy temple of God, where before Jesus came, the presence of God was supposed to dwell. And that room was not allowed, and we couldn't go into it because we were imperfect. But in the moment that Jesus gave his life, no one really knows how. This really, really thick curtain called a veil split in two, symbolizing that we now have access to the presence of God. So immediately after Jesus' death, it's pointing back to the centrality of Christ. We don't need that anymore. And we hear the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who is willing to die because he suddenly realized that Jesus is worth everything. And as Jesus sacrificed his life, I will sacrifice my life, and I'm willing to give it all. We see the story of Peter, right? who's not only able to eat with the non-Israelites, the Gentiles, and this is not just the story of how we get bacon, although it is how we get bacon. It's not just the story of how we get bacon. He's able to dwell and eat, and this shows us that the gospel came for us all, and even traced through the story of Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesus, Ephesians, excuse me, to the people of Ephesus. And as he wrote this book, you got to realize this was a man who went before his conversion, and dragged people out of their homes and was throwing them in prison and killing people who were followers of Jesus, showing us that Jesus came for you and for me. If Jesus came for that person, as Paul self-describes himself, the chief of sinners, doesn't he come for you and for me? You see, there is a call to chase after God and to rest in Him, but it's not a list of morals that we're seeking. The morals come as a result of seeking Him. Don't get those mixed up. And we will all fall, and we will all fail, and we will all need someone to pick us up, and that's why the church needs us. So as we rest in Him, we also need each other. We need to remind each other to rest in Him. We need to remind each other that this is what this life is about. And the way that does, the way that unfolds is we need to recognize that we 
are children of the God, for he has adopted us as sons and daughters. What does it mean to be adopted? My mom had the blessed opportunity to have three kids with only one birth. And no, I'm not triplets. I am a twin. But my mom got told she couldn't have kids. And so they adopted my older brother. And when Micah came into the world, my mom got pregnant with twins. And here I am. <coughs> Isn't that funny how God works sometimes that way? Now, here's the interesting thing. My older brother, um, although he's not much of a teaser, if he were to tease me, would very likely say the following to you. Mom and Dad chose me. They got stuck with you. <laughs> you know what? You can't argue with that, right? I, I, I'm literally what came out. Isn't there something beautiful though, about the picture of adoption that God loves you? That you are not a mistake or an accident. And then when God looks out into your heart, he says, you are now mine. Now what does it look like to be adopted? What it looks like to be adopted is that we take on his name. We take on his name. And so as we are looking to the unfolding of God's plan and to realize that we are taking on his name as we surrender our life to Jesus, we get to take on the characteristics of who God is. And so every story begins to talk about us. The plan was always adoption. We, are, we were children of the world, yet we can be children of the Father through Jesus Christ. As we take on his name, we are recognizing that God himself is to be the father of our life. Now, here's the problem. Some of us had really lousy fathers. And can we all admit that no matter how good your father was at points, they were lousy fathers. I am a father and I can testify. And if you didn't have an ideal father, maybe you didn't even know who your father was, I just want to tell you, I am sorry, but I also want to offer you hope there is a loving father who unconditionally accepts you. And I was blessed to have mostly a good father. And when I think about what that looks like and I, I begin to understand what it looked like to have a good father, I'm always reminded of the trips we went on. Because when we go on trips, we were going on this wonderful journey, right? This, I couldn't always comprehend what that would look like. And my dad would go out and he would get, you know, like the MapQuest and print it on the digital printer. <laughs> MapQuest Kids was before the phones. And some of you remember the AAA packets. Who are my AAA people? Uh, you just told us how old you are, but I'm sorry, that's okay. <laughs> this idea of, the, uh, of preparing and planning for the journey, some of you are like, AAA, is that a ball club? No, it's another story, another time. Don't worry about it. Look it up on Google on your phone later. We didn't have that either. But as we looked into this journey and this trip, my dad would say, we're going to leave at 6 a.m., and I inevitably knew what that meant. Knock, 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 3.30 in the morning, kids were leaving. And as a little boy, my dad would come and pick me up and put me in the back of a station wagon and know we didn't have to buckle in because it was pre-sea belts. And we'd, get, we'd go on these wonderful journeys. And somewhere along the journey, my dad would wake us up and say, time to go to the bathroom or time to eat. And we'd look out the window, we'd laugh and we'd talk. And it was a wonderful time of peace. But how ridiculous would it have been if I was age seven and go, you know what, dad? I know you did all this work, but let me take the wheel. Why are you laughing? I'm a very responsible person. <laughs> when the family crashed, do you think that would be a problem? But why do we always try to take the wheel of our lives? Hear me, men. 
some of the most manly things you can do is to realize you don't have to know every answer. And that takes a manly man to submit to the will of the Father. Ladies, you too. Sometimes we men just need to be reminded of it more. And as we release ourselves to the Father and chase after Him, what happens is God affords us the peace to walk with Him. So as sons or daughters, will you trust Him with everything? How do we do that? We realize in bearing His name, we take on His characteristic. So what are the names of Christ that we can carry with us? With John 14, 6, says he is our salvation because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We have a Savior who is in control of us. As 1 Timothy 4.10 says, when we trust him with our life, he affords us the grace and the peace that we described. And the reason he is our Savior is because as Hebrews 3.1 says, he is our great high priest. In other words, he went into the Holy of Holies. He has made the sacrifice and made a way for us to come back to us. And as we go back into him, he stands before the Father, as it says in 1 John 2.1, as our advocate saying, yes, they carry the name of Christ. We are for this because he is Emmanuel, as Isaiah 7.14 says, God was with us. He came and dwelt amongst us. Christmas has already come, right? And because he has come, the image of the invisible God, we have a way to understand what it looks like to follow Christ because he came in human form, as it says in Colossians 1.14. Because he is alive, we can still look to his example because ain't nobody found nobody. And as we chase that through, because he is alive, we can trust that he will be our provider as our bread of life, John 6, 35. He will be our protector as the Lion of Judah, Revelations 5, 5. He is our rock in every storm, Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is not only our rock, but he is our chief cornerstone upon which we build our very foundation, upon which we build our very hope, Ephesians 2, 20. And as we begin to build up the body. It's the development of the church. We recognize that he is the head of the church, so we don't grow up to come take the wheel. We grow up to continually learn how to give him the wheel more. I'm not the leader of the church. Amen? Jesus is. You don't want me to be the leader of the church, because I'm still a man who's going to have valuable and make mistakes. And as we recognize that he is our king, Matthew 16, 16, this is what affords us the peace that comes when we understand what it looks like to walk in the grace as adopted sons or daughters of the king. Don't let anybody put you down. I don't care about your socioeconomic status. I don't care about your tribe, your tongue, your nation. God loves you. I do care about your tribe, your tongue, and your nation. But you understand what I'm saying. God loves you. So church, would you give your dysfunction back over to the one who will always love you? There's one other name of Jesus I want to share with you today, although there's many more. And perhaps this is the best place to start when we're struggling, relinquishing control. It's to realize that he is the good shepherd, John 10, 11. And not only is he the good shepherd, but he will help us to see how to walk and dwell in the journey of this life, just like my dad put me in the car, the journey of this life. Go along and enjoy the journey with Christ until we get to our eternal destination. 
I want us to share Psalm 23, a passage that's often reserved for funerals, but should be a life calling for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. Here the season's coming out. The green pastures is a, is a time of harvest, right? He renews my life. This is a time of spring. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. And even when I go through the darkest valley, the winters of my life, I will fear no danger for you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the times when I don't feel like my prayers are going past the ceiling, God has not abandoned you. He is still there. You prepare a table. The harvest has come before me. In the presence of my enemies, there will be the celebration you as you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. If you want the goodness and faithful love to dwell, then you have to trust the shepherd. Trust the shepherd. So here's our daily training. We want you to trust the shepherd by trusting Jesus' character and his plan and purpose for your life. How do you do that? What are you struggling with? Find a name of Jesus that helps you with that. Struggling with anxiety? Trust that he is your rock. Struggling with provision? See that he is your provider. Struggling with whatever? Realize there is a name of Jesus. And there's this thing called Google. You can go verses on. Don't read the blogs. The blogs can be dangerous. Verses on struggling with anxiety. Read the verses. Okay? And trust the character of God through that. After the service, if anybody wants to pray, we'd love to pray with you. If you want to learn how to receive Jesus, we'd love to do that. But as we close, instead of praying today, I'd like to do something a little different. I want to invite you to let me pray Psalms 23, the verses I just read to you over again. And instead of just hearing them, I want you to hear it as if Jesus himself is saying, I've got you. Hear him as the shepherd. So if you want to close your eyes and have your palms up, great. If you think that's awkward, whatever. Do whatever you need to do. But as we respond to God, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the quiet waters. He renews my life, and he leads me along the right paths for his namesake. And even, though I go, even when I go through the darkest valleys, I will fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. To the glory of God. Amen.